First Timothy chapter 1, we'll read verses 1 until the end of the chapter, 1 to 20. And after reading it, I'll make some comments about each paragraph, and then we'll uh, interact with questions. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urge you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, and yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. And yet for this reason I found mercy, in order that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered over to Satan, so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. In chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, Paul the Apostle identifies who he is and the ministry that he's been given. And then a salutation, a greeting to Timothy in verse 2. In verse 1, notice he has to identify himself as Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and Christ Jesus, who is our hope. He needs to identify himself as the apostle with the authority of Christ and the authority of God the Father himself. 
he appeals to this because it's necessary for him to appeal to this. As we've read in chapter 1, there are false teachers around. They abound. And because of that, the people need to know the difference between a true teacher and a false teacher. He identifies himself here as an apostle. Let's see what this means in terms of his commission and call to the ministry, first for salvation and also for the ministry. In Acts chapter 9, we have an account of his conversion. This is the testimony of Luke recording what happened to him and the words of the Lord Jesus in regards to the Apostle Paul. Acts chapter 9, Paul the Apostle, first an unbeliever and then a believer and then an apostle also. Acts 9 verse 1, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And it came about that as he journeyed, he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and it shall be told you what you must do. And the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call upon your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias departed. And entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you are coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he arose and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. Now this is the Apostle Paul's conversion. He is a persecutor of the church, and yet Christ appears to him, converts him. Ananias knows that he was notorious, and Ananias needed a word from the Lord, assurance that Paul was a true convert. And not only was he now a true convert, but he was a chosen instrument of Christ, it says in verse 15, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. He who used to uh, cause the saints to suffer will now suffer for the gospel and suffer because he's appointed by Christ, a chosen instrument to preach the gospel 
to the Gentiles and before the authorities. This is the Apostle Paul. Now Paul understood his ministry and the gravity and the importance of the Lord Jesus appearing to him. He understood this very well. Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. I bring this passage, Galatians 1, to our attention because there are many, historically, in the time of Paul and throughout the history of the church, there have have been detractors and denigrators of the ministry of the Apostle Paul. I'm trying to here establish that he is an apostle, he knows he's an apostle, and others identify him as an apostle. So far we've seen that Luke and Jesus himself do so, and now Paul here in Galatians 1. Galatians 1, verse 1. Here too, at Galatia, there were many who were preaching falsehoods, and he had to correct it. So he begins chapter 1, verse 1. Galatians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us out of this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. You notice in verse 1, immediately after identifying himself, he has to say, after he says he's Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. What's the problem? The problem is verse 6, 6 and following. I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. The problem is there are different gospels out there, and the Galatians were embracing those different gospels. And in this case, he says in verse 7, he knows that they are disturbing the different gospels and the promoters of them are disturbing you and want, deliberate, they want to distort the gospel of Christ. Yet Paul was so convinced of his conversion, the appearance of Christ to him and his conversion and his ministry and life in Christ up to this point, so convinced that he says that even though we, verse 8, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And he pronounces it a, a double curse. He says it again. He knows that the gospel he preached was a true gospel. So, he's trying to please Christ by saying this. He's not trying to please men. He used to try to please men, but not anymore. And then verse 11. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. 
For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when he who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. In here, 11 to 17, he's emphasizing again that he received the gospel, heard the gospel, embraced it, believed it, when Christ revealed himself to him. It wasn't through the agency of man that he heard it truly and believed it fully. It was only when Christ appeared to him. So in our first section of 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we have Paul establishing his apostolic authority that came according to the commandment of God and of Christ. And it's on the basis of this that he addresses this letter to Timothy, my true child in the faith. When he calls him my true child in the faith, he's not saying that Paul was responsible for Timothy's conversion because he had acknowledges in 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 18, that his grandmother and mother were the ones who taught him the faith and brought him to the faith. What he means is that Timothy is his true or genuine disciple, one of his most endearing disciples, one who had embraced the gospel and lived out the gospel in, in the truest sense of the term. And it is this Timothy who is in the city of Ephesus, as he says in verse 3, remain on at Ephesus. He's in the city of Ephesus where he is a pastor and he's commissioned to pastor there and also build up the church there, which includes the building up of the men in that place, but the whole church as, as well. Now, verses 3 and 4. This is the, the difficulty and the problem at Ephesus. Verses 3 to 4 explain that there is a need for the true child of God to reject strange doctrines. Verses 3 to 4. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus in order that you may instruct a certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. He urges Timothy, he urged him to remain at Ephesus while Paul had to depart. He urged him to remain at Ephesus for the purpose of instructing certain men. Now, the certain men, according to this passage in Galatians 2.12 and Jude 4 is a phrase in the Bible that refers to certain false teachers. Certain men are the false teachers that Timothy is called on to confront and he's called on to tell them, to teach them, to refute them, not to teach strange doctrines. It's a part of the ministry of Timothy and pastors, elders, to hold off and push back against 
strange doctrines. This is what he's commissioned to do. And he has to do so face to face or however he can with these men who are teaching the strange doctrines. Now in the Bible, a strange doctrine is that which does not come from our Heavenly Father. It's alien to the family. It's alien to the true church. The strange doctrines come from outside. They come from the devil. They come from the world. And they also come from the flesh. The strange doctrines are those doctrines that are not in accord with the true gospel, which true gospel is explained in the subsequent verses. And in this case, it manifested itself, as he says in verse 4, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. Don't pay attention to myths. The myths on how the world came into being, the myths on how God or gods came into being, the myths on how angels and different tiers of angels, the hierarchy of angels and all those kinds of things, the myths that people love to promote and speculate, these kinds of things should not deserve our attention. In fact, we're supposed to reject those kinds of things. Don't pay attention to myths. That which is not factual, not historical, not revealed as absolute truth, don't pursue those things. Have nothing to do with myths. There's no point. It's fiction. It's, it's, it's vapor. It doesn't last. And endless genealogies. These false teachers also love to analyze in reference to angels and the gods on and on and on, which God begat which God, and what happened with those gods and their circumstances and their families over their dominion and everything else, over the worlds that they create. These are the things that they like to do. But among the Jewish false teachers, what they like to do is go into the genealogies, the genealogies of the Old Testament, and look at the names, the spelling of the names, put numbers to the names, the, the letters and, the, and the, the names themselves, the full names, give them, uh, assign them numbers and speculate and say that this name actually has a certain spiritual significance that is not apparent to the average reader. So they have this esoteric, elitist kind of knowledge about the names and they say that the, this name has a certain number, and by that number you can determine this or that about the past and the future. So they in, inevitably seek to be prophets and tell us what the future holds by looking at the genealogies and all those things. He says these kinds of things, these are just two examples, these kinds of things give rise to mere speculation. Speculation. We ought not to be speculators. We ought not to d deal with frivolities and things that are, that are uh, vaporous, things that we don't really know. If we don't know, then don't go. Don't go there. Don't pursue it. Just say we don't know. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. They belong to Him. He knows. But the things revealed belong to us, and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. Whatever is revealed is what we should fall, seek to know and follow and obey. And he says that these speculations 
are contrary to the administration of God, which is by faith. God administrates the gospel. He administrates the truth by faith. By faith in the truth. If we have faith in the truth, we are growing in godliness. We're growing in the knowledge of God. We are exalting Christ. We are pursuing the gospel. If we're not growing in faith, in the things of uh, the, the Bible, the truth of the Bible, then we're not pursuing the administration of God. Then he says, he explains what our goal is. Verse 5. Verse 5. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The goal of our instruction, the goal of the Christian faith, the goal of the Bible is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Love. When he says love, this means love of God and love of neighbor. The two greatest commandments. To love God with all the heart, the soul, the mind, and the strength. And the second commandment, to love uh, our neighbor as ourself. This is the goal of the Christian life. Those who pursue these kinds of intellectual and theological speculations of verse 4, they don't care about that. They might say they care about it, but they don't really care about it. Those who truly love God don't pursue the things of verse 4. Instead, they pursue the love of God from a pure heart. Their heart has been purified because of redemption. Their heart has been purified because the Holy Spirit has taken the heart of stone and made it into a heart of flesh. They are now a new creature in Christ. They have a pure heart, and this pure heart from this emanates good and pure things. As the Apostle says in Titus, Titus 1.15, To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. We who have a pure heart, we who have been born again, we who have been caused to be born again by the Holy Spirit, we now have a pure heart, and from this pure heart comes a desire to love God and to love our neighbor. He says also a good conscience. We used to have an evil conscience. We used to have dead works. We used to have a conscience that held us guilty before God. But what happened? Now we have a good one. It says in Hebrews 9, Hebrews 9, 13, If the blood of goats and, the, and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? We used to have dead works and an evil conscience, a guilty conscience. Now we have a good conscience because our heart has been changed. We know that we are right with God. We know that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 And from this good conscience is a desire again to love God and to love our neighbor. And thirdly, he says in verse 5, a sincere faith. A sincere faith, a sincere or genuine faith. We don't have a mixture, an admixture of perversion 
and a, an admixture of insincerity, a desire for self-interest, self-promotion, uh, to raise uh, our, our status among people. This is not the point. The sincere faith is a genuine, godly faith, faith in God, faith in Christ and our redemption, and from that is the love of God and the love of the neighbor. As it says in Romans 14, 23, whatever is not from faith is sin. Whatever is not from faith is sin. Now we have true faith, a gifted faith. We have that true faith, and from that true faith, we are able to love God and love our neighbor. These, generally speaking, basically speaking, are the things that should come from us because the, this is our goal. It should come from us as we minister the gospel to others. Verses 6 to 11, here he draws the contrast. This is the way it ought to be, but this is not the way it always is. Verse 6, For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion. Some men, the certain men of verse 3, some men, they stray from these things. They were told to be on the straight path, but now they have strayed from that straight path. They have gone aside. They have turned aside. To turn aside from the straight path means you're going to fall into a ditch. You're going to fall into a place where it's dangerous. And the danger is here fruitless discussion. Fruitless discussion. Many things are discussed often by those in, in, within the church and within Christianity. Many things are discussed but they are fruitless. There's no point. We need to judge what is fruitful and what's unfruitful by what's in the Bible. This is our standard. We ought not to pursue fruitless discussion. Verse 7, these same teachers said, or they want to be teachers of the law. They want to be teachers of the law. They want to teach people about the law of the Old Testament. They want to teach them the law. But that itself is not good. Verse 7 says, even though they do not understand either what they are saying. They are clueless about what they're talking about. They might be using the biblical words, but they don't understand the biblical meanings. They might be saying things like Moses, law, commandment, circumcision. They might be saying words like that, and they are familiar words because they are in the Bible, but they have no clue about what the true meaning of those words are as they teach other people. They don't understand anything. Not only do they not understand, it also says in 7, or the matters about which they make confident assertions. They are confident. They're dogmatic. They insist that they understand. They insist that they know. They insist that this is in the Bible. They insist on those things. They're confident. However, they have a false confidence. A true confidence comes from the following. Verses 8 to 11. This is what they do not understand. Verses 8 to 11. But we know that there's the true confidence. But we know that the law is good 
if one uses it lawfully. The law is good if one uses it lawfully. The law in and of itself, the Word of God in and of itself, is not evil. It is good. As it says in Romans, Romans 7.12, So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. In and of itself, the law is good because it is the Word of God. It reveals the will of God. It is good. Just as a tool used for the wrong purpose will not repair what it's intended to repair. In the same way, the law, if it's used wrongfully, will not do what its intended purpose is to do. So what is here, as he says, the lawful use of the law? Verse 8, the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Then how should we use it lawfully? What is the true purpose? He explains, verse 9. Realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous man. It's not made for a righteous man. So if it's not made for a righteous man, it's made for a wicked man. If it's made for a wicked man, then he describes who they are. You'll notice in this list, in verses 9 to 10, that there are similarities between this list and the Ten Commandments. Similarities between this and the Ten Commandments. The law is made for a wicked man. For what purpose? But for those who are lawless and rebellious. Wicked men who are not righteous, they are also described as lawless and rebellious. They don't want to do what's in the law, and they rebel against the authority of the law, the authority of the Word of God in the law. They want no law, and they want no authority. And it's made for, he explains who these kinds of people are. He explains who the unrighteous, lawless, and rebellious people are. They are ungodly and sinners, unholy and profane. They kill their fathers or mothers. They murder. They're immoral, homosexuals, kidnappers, liars, and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. He mentions these sins, but also adds that he hasn't listed every sin exhaustively. He says, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. All of these sins are to be rejected, and he says that the law is there to tell us that we are wicked, that we do these kinds of things, and that we need a resolution to it. We need redemption. We need a reconciliation. We need the punishment and the, and the judgment we deserve for doing these kinds of things to be alleviated. We need to be justified, exonerated from these things. This is the purpose of the law, to tell us our sin and our need for salvation. And the law of the Old Testament also explains the gospel. The law not only explains what's wrong and evil with us, but the law also tells us what is the solution to our evil? What is the way of justification for the condemnation we deserve? And that way of justification is in the gospel of Christ. And that's what he says in verse 11. All of these things, these behaviors, which are here in verses 9 and 10 are practical and moral sins. And verse 4, he has mentioned the theological or the intellectual kinds of sins. 
So there's both theological sins and moral sins. And he's saying in verse 11 that these are all contrary according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. All the sins that he has explained are contrary to sound teaching, and sound teaching accords with the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. See, the gospel, if we were to explain it in its bare form and simple form, it would be believing that Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures, He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4, where the Gospel is explained. But those truths explained there have implications that are more than that bare minimum. So if outside of that bare minimum, believing that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, if there's anything else that contradicts, undermines, subverts those truths, they are contrary to the Gospel. So, endless genealogies and myths would be contrary to the true Gospel. How? For example, if we believe Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, then the Old Testament predicted it would happen, and then in time and space, in history, it actually happened. Now, if it actually happened that way, then a myth would undermine that. And it says he died for our sins. If he died for our sins on the moral level, if he died for our sins, then should we pursue that sin anymore if we claim Christ? If we believe in Christ, should we pursue the sins that we used to pursue? Should we do that anymore? No. We ought to reject them because they are contrary to the gospel. If we say we believe Christ died for our sins, that he might deliver us from our sins since they deserve condemnation, now we ought to give up those sins. That's why whatever these sins mention, moral sins of verses 9 and 10, we ought to give them up. Give them up because they're contrary to the gospel. The gospel, in, in a nutshell, Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. However, there are many implications, if we truly believe that, implications that would undermine that gospel. So we must understand the gospel fully, along with all of its implications. And how can we do so unless we know what's in the Bible? If we don't know the scriptures, if we don't read the scriptures, if we don't study them and talk about them, how can we know? We must know the glorious gospel, not the ignoble and dishonorable wicked life of the past, but the glorious gospel of the blessed God. The blessed God who pronounces and gives us a blessing, not a curse anymore, because the curse has been laid on Christ. And here he says, he's been entrusted in verse 11. The apostle has been entrusted with this gospel. He will also remind Timothy that Timothy's been entrusted with it. 1 Timothy 6.20 1 Timothy 6.20 O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. Timothy's been entrusted with it also, and so have we. So, whatever applied to Paul and applied to Timothy also applies to us in the promotion of the gospel.